All right, so we're going to read God's Word now. So if you'd like to open up to 1 Corinthians 9. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. um, And yeah, it has definitely been challenging and encouraging at the same time. Um, And this morning, yeah, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 27. So I'll give you a bit of time to turn to that page. All right, 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me, on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, Is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not not make full of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those having, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, although I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. 
I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I, might, I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Thanks, Josh. G'day, everyone. Lovely to see you all. Um, you know how um, you know, in the Olympics or Commonwealth Games, they sometimes do a backstory uh, of some of the athletes to show where their road to sporting greatness began? I, I thought I'd share a bit of that uh, for me this morning. Uh, so for me, my road to sporting greatness began in the small country town of Borellan. So that's uh, Borellan from the sky a little country town of 200 people when I was seven years old. My dad was appointed the bank manager in the town and so we moved there. Now what sport is a young lad going to excel in in a, in a town like Borellan? Uh, you might think golf. Well, here's the golf course. About 15 years ago, I went and visited uh, Borellan Golf Club uh, and it, it looked pretty much the same as when I was a kid. Uh, and say so that mound we're standing on, that's the, the green, uh, but it's a kind of a, it's a gravel green and you get a rake and you can actually rake a little furrow that makes it easier when you... Anyway, but no, no, it wasn't golf. Uh, and you might ask, was it tennis? Uh, and uh, tennis is one of those ones where you think, oh, wow, because there's a giant tennis racket in the main street of Borellan. A right, town of 200 has a giant tennis racket. That's because it is the home of Yvonne Goolagong. Uh, famous indigenous, you know, legend, legend. And that was my town, right? Uh, and, but no, tennis, actually, just on that photo, see the second house from the left on the main street? That was where I lived, right, above the ANZ bank. Uh, so there you go. Um, so, but no, no, it wasn't tennis. My sport was swimming, um, my dad was the swimming coach of the elite Borellan swimming squad. Uh, and at one point, I was the Riverina champion for breaststroke for my age. Right, take that on board, right? Just to, to sit with that for a moment. Uh, but I, I found swimming incredibly boring, like unbelievably boring, you know, just up and down, up and down. And so I used to hide in the change rooms and hope my dad didn't notice uh, that I was sneaking out. So I've got to admit, my road to sporting glory didn't last all that long, uh, but there were glimmers uh, along the way. Um, I've actually made friends with a true sporting hero, and her name is Jessica Shipper. Here she is. Uh, we're friends, uh, on Facebook at least. Um, she accepted my friend request. Uh, Anyway, about 15 years ago, I, I was having a bit of a chat with uh, Jessica on Facebook. Uh, sorry, this is not a normal thing, right? <laughs> so just don't get the wrong idea here. Anyway, so because at one point she held the world record for 200 metre butterfly. And I said, look, what does it take to be a true sporting hero? Because I didn't really stay on that road for long enough to know. 
Um, and she said, hi, Dave, I've kind of not had a social life. Because of gruelling hours I keep in training from 1998 to 2008, I used to get up at 3.45am to be in the water by 4.30am, out of the water at 6.30am, then off to school. When I finished school, off to work. I don't know, what she's, is she working on homework or is she working at Macca's? I don't know, but anyway, my goodness. Back in the water at 4... Uh, back in... Uh, Back in the water at 4.30, finish around 6.30, home for dinner, then I would crash from exhaustion, ready to start the same old, same old the next day. And you go, what a routine. Uh, you know, the, the incredible discipline, the ability to push on through the boredom and the, and the tiredness and the diet and just day after day. See, people who have a driving ambition are willing to make incredible sacrifices uh, in order to reach their ambition. Yes, uh, so people who have a clear goal are willing to make great sacrifices. Now, God wants each of us, if we're a follower of Jesus, he wants us to be ambitious. Um, not selfish ambition, right? That is far from God's intention for us. But God wants us to have a godly ambition, he wants each of us to see the eternal prize that awaits us in the future and to actually orientate our lives, to make sacrifices towards that goal. Uh, and that really is what Paul describes in his own life, but he also calls on us to do the same. Uh, so it's going to be a challenge this morning, but it's also an invitation to actually be captured by something much grander than the ordinary day-to-day -day life that we can easily drift into. All right, so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. At the start of the chapter, Paul gives seven reasons for financially supporting Christian workers. Let me just go through these quickly. Firstly, he says, look, the other apostles enjoyed this right. So verse 5, don't we have the right to take a believing wife with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Secondly, he says, any worker deserves payment. Right? Who serves as a soldier, verse 7, at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? Um, thirdly, the Old Testament law, if you read it, hints at the idea that the worker deserves his wages. So, verse 8, do I say this from merely human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And so Paul says, David Sheath, he's one of your oxen, right? You know, you've, you've employed him to get a job done. Don't starve him while he's on the job, right? Just feed him, keep him lean and hungry, but give him some to eat, and same with Josh and you know, others. Okay, so there's the third thing. Fourthly, spiritual seed ought to bring a material harvest. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest? Fifthly, the Corinthians were actually in the pattern of supporting other gospel workers. Verse 12, if others have this right of support, shouldn't we have it all the more? Paul had started the church in Corinth. He was their founding missionary. Surely he 
had a right to their financial support. Sixthly, temple workers get provided for. Verse 13, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in what's offered on the altar? Number seven, Jesus commanded such payment. Verse 14, in the same way the Lord, Jesus, has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So there it is, seven compelling reasons why we ought to provide for gospel workers. Now here at the Lakes, we don't talk about money a lot. Uh, You might just come on the wrong Sunday if you think we do. Uh, Every now and then we do need to talk about it, but we don't talk about it a lot because we live in Australia. Australians are uh, are suspicious about religion and they're suspicious about religion and money. Uh, and, and there's a feeling that churches are always only ever on about money. And we don't want someone who's new to come along to church and the first time they arrive, uh, it's just on about money. We, do, we don't want, Because it's not all about money. It is so clearly not all about money. And yet, there are financial realities. And so Paul here has laid out seven compelling reasons why it's appropriate that we, the members of this church continue to generously support the ministry that's going on. Now, many of us are super generous, um, and we, we've proven that over the last 20 years. I look back and I just think God has stirred in the hearts of so many to give so generously, uh, and it, it really is a miracle. You know, in, in Australia where we are, most people have a deep love for money, people here in this church have parted with money for the cause of the gospel at great sacrifice, with great regularity, with great generosity. Uh, but I, I do want to point out, and I'm not looking at I might just look at the sky at this point, I'm not looking at anyone in particular, but there are some who would call the Lakes Church their family church, and yet haven't got into a regular pattern of giving financially. And if that's you, I just want to urge you how important it is that we all play a part. Uh, We're feeling the pinch at the moment. We're $56,000 behind budget, and that's a lot, right? If you're not sure whether that's a lot or that's a lot. Uh, And it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit intimidating sort of looking at those sort of figures. But I'm confident that we can make up that sort of amount because there's a large number of us, and if we all chip in, we can actually make a big difference together. And so we need to get out of that thinking that someone else will step in and kind of come to the rescue. This is something for all of us to kind of shoulder uh, the responsibility. Part of our obligation as Christians is to support the work of Jesus by giving financially to gospel workers. But... Right, I don't want you to lose that, right? hold on to that, think about that, pray about that. But, look at verse 15. Paul says, But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I'd rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. See, Paul knew very well he had every right to be paid financially, but he willingly happily chose not to and you think why why would someone who has the opportunity to receive what what is their due 
why would someone say, no thanks, uh, I don't want to take your money? Uh, in, in, in the age of materialism, in a place like Australia, where, where so many are chasing after money as if it was their God, the idea of turning your back on financial payment and choosing not to take what is your due is extraordinary, remarkable, isn't it? Why would Paul do it? Well, he says very clearly, I, I, I know I've got the right to financial payment, but I'm happily choosing not to take up that right. And it's because Paul had a bigger ambition than money. And it wasn't a selfish ambition. There was nothing self-centered about his ambition at all. He had a godly ambition. And throughout this passage, he makes it clear why he was willing to make these sacrifices. Have a look at verse 19. I might throw this one on the screen. Though I am free and belong to no one, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Paul was a free man. He knew his rights, but he actually said, I'm going to forego my rights and enslave myself, make myself a servant to others for the bigger ambition of winning people to Jesus. Verse 22. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that, I'm, that I may share in its blessings. So as we said right at the start, lots of people in our society are willing to make great sacrifices. Great sacrifices are still part of our society today. Jessica Shipper, you know, the diet, the discipline, the... Just the early morning starts. The sense of, I don't want to do this, but I will push on through it because there's a bigger goal that I'm heading towards, the exhausting sleep. Um, and so many do that for sport or to kind of, you know, bring their body to look like they want it to look like. People make extraordinary sacrifices to advance their career, don't they? where they actually set their heart on a certain career, it shapes the way they study during the HSC. It shapes, they go through years where they don't have any income. They actually pay to go to university for the goal of this career. And when they enter the career, they're willing to put in the hard hours to kind of rise up to kind of hit their goal of career. People make extraordinary sacrifices in buying a house, don't they? Uh, increasingly so, where if you're a young couple in Australia and you think we want to buy a house, you've actually got to radically change your lifestyle. You've actually got to do up a budget and you think we can't do this, so what changes do we need to make happen in order to do it? How can we actually save a deposit? Are we going to need to get an extra job? Are we going to need to stop spending money on this, that and the other? Uh, how, are we prepared for years and years living in mortgage stress, living in the anxiety that interest rates might go up? And people say, yes, I'm prepared to count the cost. The point I'm making is, it is quite incredible what people are willing to sacrifice once they set their heart on a particular goal. Yeah? So there's nothing extraordinary about that. 
But Paul had a godly, gospel-shaped ambition. He lived with this acute awareness of the two eternal realities, heaven and hell. And he knew that the message of Jesus was the only hope for humanity. The only way people could enter heaven was by putting their trust in the Lord Jesus. Uh, And so Paul's driving ambition was not just to cross the finish line himself and to be saved. Paul's driving ambition was for the people that God had sent him to, that they would be saved as well, that they would cross the finish line with him, that they would escape the judgment of God, cross the finish line and be there on that last day. And Paul was willing to go to great sacrifice, was willing to give up lots to achieve that goal. He was gripped by it. Um, now, and you might be sitting there thinking, wow, Paul really was committed. He really was a bit of a, a freak. And I just want to warn you, because Paul, Paul actually wants us to imitate him. He's putting himself not as some extraordinary person that we could never be like. He's actually putting himself out as a role model for us to imitate. So right at the end of this section, he says this. For I'm not seeking, this is chapter 10, verse 33. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. He's saying this is the pattern Jesus set. He gave up so much for our salvation. And Paul's saying, I'm following Jesus' example. Now you follow my example. This is the pattern of the Christian life, uh, to take up our cross and follow our Lord, the one who stooped to serve us by dying on a cross. Paul says, that's our pattern. Um, So, uh, and he also calls on us, run in such a way as to receive the prize. And I want to argue that the prize is not just me crossing the finish line and getting eternal life. The prize is me having others there with me on that day. As a church, for us to cross the finish line and look around and go, oh, wow, the members of my growth group, and we prayed for each other, and they are there. The little kids that, you know, presented their craft on that morning, they are there. And we prayed for them and, and taught them the scriptures, and they crossed the finish line to... Paul's idea of the prize is much more comprehensive than a self-centered, I got there. It's a, we got there. And look around and look at the difference that Jesus made even through me in this generation. Now, what does that look like in practice? Well, we've seen financially what it meant. Paul said, I'm willing to offer the gospel free of charge. But it also also impacted... Even the choices Paul made when he was invited out to dinner. Right? And so, it's funny because it just seems bizarre to us, but that's how this section began. Remember, food sacrifice to idols. What do you do if you turn up to someone's house and you're offered food? Do you eat it or not? How do you make those decisions? Look at verse 19. Paul says, Though I am free 
and I belong to no one. I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then he breaks it down. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. He was a Jew, so that wasn't the hardest thing in the world for him. But I came like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. See, we Christians, we're not obligated to keep the Old Testament commandments and the food laws and all that sort of stuff. But if Paul was invited to a Jewish dinner party or if he had Jewish people over to his place, there wouldn't be any pork or prawns or lobster or ham or any of those things because they were unclean for a Jewish person. And Paul says, so I willingly set aside my love of pork, my love of prawns and seafood and so on. I willingly set that aside for my Jewish friends when I have a meal with them. Verse 21. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. So Paul would go over to a non-Jewish household, and they might serve up anything, right? So as a Jewish boy, you know, used to lamb and beef and, you know, all those sort of things, he served up lobster. Uh, For a Jewish person, that would have been, oh man, do I really want to eat this? Rock badger? Uh, and there was all sorts of things that you'd be served up that as a Jewish boy he would never have eaten in his life. And he says, no, all right, I'll just, I'll eat it. Won't ask any questions. I'll just be, uh, you know, hospitality. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. So if he went to a young Christian, who, you know, a non-Jewish person who'd grown up in pagan superstition. And he went to their house um, and someone raised a question, oh, was this food offered to idols before it was served up to us? At that point, Paul says, no, I'd actually withdraw from eating it. Not because there's anything wrong with the meat. Right? You have to go back to last week if you want to unpack that completely. Nothing wrong with the meat itself. But Paul says, I, I don't want to be a stumbling block to my weaker brother or, Christian, or, or sister. So I'll actually with, with uh, abstain from eating that food. And at every point along the way, Paul's motivation was not based on his own rights. It wasn't based on his own preferences. He didn't kind of exploit his own freedoms. Paul's motivation was whatever's going to be the most helpful for this group of people that I'm with in this situation. He was incredibly adaptable. Can you see that? Willing to flex his own freedoms, his own rights, his own preferences, because it's not about him. It was about others and what was going to help them in their road to coming to know Jesus. Verse 22 is the theme statement. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Now, I want to apply this to us, and I've got another one of my kind of graphs here, right? This is going to be exciting for some of you. Some of you are just... Anyway, say we've got flexible to solid. Uh, I chose lollies as my kind of... So this is a a killer python. In my day, killer python... This is like a midget python, if you ask me. But anyway, in my day, killer pythons were actually, you know, killer size as well. But So that's a flexi type of, you know, thing. Because, you know, you can squidgy it up. It's a squidgy type of lolly, right? 
uh, and you can flex it up and then you can stretch it back out. So very flexible, right, the, the, the killer python. But you've got the chuppa-chup, which are, I, right, hard, right, solid, right. So this is flexible to solid, flexible to rigid, right. So they're, they're the axes. Now, how are we going to fill out these axes? Well, along the top, I think, we start with the top, is about theology. What do I believe? What do I think the Bible's saying? Um, and you've got to ask the question, should we be flexible about that or should we actually become solid or, you know, fixed in our thinking about that? Um, what about the side axes? So the side axes, you have culture. And that is, how do I use my rights and my freedoms and my preferences? And it goes from rigid to flexible. Now, what I want you to do is talk to the person next to you. Where do you think a Christian should be on that little graph? And where would you place yourself at the moment? So where do you think a Christian should be? And where do you think you yourself would be located? Just have a quick word to the person next to you. They might help explain what it is that is off on the screen. But have, have a go. And I'll eat my snake. Uh. This is, this is great to watch. You're, so many people are pointing because you're going, what the heck is on the screen? Uh, um, all right, so let's... Where do, you, where do you think is the worst place to be? Where's the worst place? Bottom, bottom left. Yeah, bottom left, worst place to be. That is, the bottom left person is inflexible when it comes to my rights, my personal preferences. I'm stuck in my ways. Don't look to help others because it's about me and loose on what God says. No sort of firm convictions around the word of God. A bad place to be. Now, some Christians are not there. Some Christians are in the top left-hand side, willing to put aside personal preferences, willing to be culturally flexible, hip and happening, you know, onto the latest thing, but flexible in what they believe. That is, wishy-washy about, you know, the beliefs of the Bible, embarrassed by what the Bible says about sin and judgment and eternal realities and, and, and sexual ethics. And, ugh. and so kind of just a little bit flexy or, or hedging around some of the tough truths of God's word. I, there's a name for these type of Christians, jellyfish Christians, right? And that is, they have no backbone at, at all, right? So just completely flexible in every way. Let me go, uh, some Christians are at the bottom right-hand side. Solid in what they believe, that's good. Uncompromising commitment, dogged commitment to the Word of God, but stuck in their ways. Uh, and so in their kind of, in their attempts not to slide 
in what they believe, they've actually become fixed in how they kind of live their lives. And it kind of can feel like if you step into a church like that, you're stepping back a generation or two. Um, Not able to adapt to the needs of people around them. These are what you call calcified Christians uh, because they're inflexible in every way. Um, I'm not trying to insult anyone here in particular. But can you see that Paul wants us to be in the top right-hand corner? Yes, that's the place to be. Utterly solid in what we believe, convinced about the great truths of God's Word and the Bible, but willing to adapt, willing to step out of my comfort zone, willing to do what is going to be helpful for the people around me in a particular circumstance I'm in, in order to reach them with the good news of Jesus. And so, willing to make personal sacrifices as needed. That's the example of Paul. That's the example of Jesus. And that ought to be the character of our lives. Follow my example, Paul says, as I follow the example of Jesus. But I want to give you a warning. There is a tendency to drift. So let me show you. A tendency to drift... The older you get, the more you drift towards being inflexible. That, so that's the tendency. Right? And you, you know, I'm feeling the tendency, right, myself. You know, I come sometimes go, you know, go home, I have a whinge to Ruth, you know, I can get grumpy. And I realise I'm, I'm getting stuck in my ways as if life was all about me. Uh, so what we, did, what we need to do is fight that drift to become stuck in our ways. But there's also the tendency to drift to the, to the left, and that is to become wishy-washy, because God's word can be confronting in our society. It's, it's out of favour at the moment. And you can feel like, oh, it's an uncomfortable place to be, to be constantly swimming against the tide of society and what I believe. And so the temptation is to become a little bit wishy-washy in what we believe to become a jellyfish or worse the drift to become a calcified jellyfish if that was possible right uh down down there now we've got to fight the drift yeah because there's too much at stake way too much at stake the eternal salvation of men women the next generation is at stake And so what we need to do is keep being prepared to push out of our comfort zone for the sake of winning people for Jesus. Each of us individually needs to be flexible about our preferences and solid in our commitment to God's word. And it's the same for us as a church. We don't want to be a calcified church stuck in another era. We don't want to be a jellyfish church where we've just lost conviction or a confidence around the word of God courageous confidence in the word of God but a a cultural flexibility that's what we want to embrace Um, willing to adapt step out of our comfort zone not just committed to ourselves but for others and the next generation and those outside of the church walls how can we be helpful to them as we hold out the gospel of Jesus Now, in this passage, Paul holds himself out as an example. 
including the way he thinks about money. I just want to say briefly, uh, I am so thankful that this church has provided for me and my family a a salary over the last 20 years. Um, It's a great blessing being a family man who's married and with children. uh, It's meant that I have been freed up not to have to work in another job and to give myself to the work uh, of the gospel here. Uh, And I want to assure you, I don't treat this as an ordinary job. And I'll give you an example. Um, For the first 17 years of our church, my contract said I was working six days a week. And then someone came along and looked at the contract and said, that's actually an illegal contract. Uh, It's a breach of Fair Work Australia. So they reduced my contract so that I now, I'm contracted to work five days a week. Wow, so what am I going to do with that extra day? It, it actually hasn't changed my patterns of work one bit. Uh, I use that extra day. It's not like I've got a Gundam head or someone's... But I use my extra day to, for the work of the gospel. Because what more important thing is there? I count it as a privilege to be able to be set aside for gospel ministry. I have never regarded it as an ordinary 40-hour a week. I'm never counting the clock going, oh, yeah, I've hit my hours for the day. That's just not the character of the work. It, I'm gripped by the opportunity to make an eternal difference. And Ruth has been a partner in me along the way. Over the last two years, Ruth's been paid by this church for two days a week. But for the first 17 years of church, she was a full-time mum and a full-time gospel worker with us. I don't know how you combined two full-time roles, but she managed to pull it off, voluntarily, that is, right? not paid. Sometimes as her husband, I was tempted to think, oh, wow, Ruth gets taken for granted. You know, and there was that kind of justice thing that sometimes arises for you. But she doesn't complain. She's worked hard. She's made costly sacrifices. But like me, she counts it a privilege, uh, and it's what she wants to do. And then I look around at this church, and I'm not going to name anyone in particular, but there are so many making those same choices. Uh, some in small ways, as they're able, but I can think of dozens of people in our church who give 10, 20, 30 hours a week, voluntarily, without compulsion, um, why would they do it? It's because they have a godly ambition. They've been captured by something bigger than themselves and their small dreams, captured by God's purposes, and, and they've said, I'm, I'm in, I'm all in uh, with this. The spotlight's on MTS today. And this is what we want for our ministry trainees. We don't want them... So we want them to learn skills... We want them to gain knowledge. We want them to get experience in gospel ministry. But more than anything else, we want them to be gripped by what God is doing in our world and to actually be signed on to that. Like Paul, willing, I'll do all things, what is it? All things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Uh, We want to raise up a generation of gospel workers who are all in for the cause of the gospel.
Um, all right. So, at, at the start, I contrasted my own road to sporting success with Jessica Shipper. Here she is. Me, unmotivated, easily distracted, not willing to count the cost. She, incredibly disciplined. Diet, getting up, pushing through the pain, the boredom, all that sort of stuff. Who are you more like? Me or Jessica? Now, when it comes to swimming, who cares? Right? Who cares? Right? God is not going to say to me at the end of time, he's not going to say, now, David, about your swimming career, you know, those days when you hid in the bathroom when your dad was trying to coach you in swimming, uh, my, slack at, uh, my slack approach to swimming is the least of my concerns on that day. Because ultimately, that's not what's important. What is important is the greater goal, the prize, eternal life. And it's not just about me crossing the finish line. I want to cross the finish line. But it's about all of us to be there together. And it's about people outside the walls of this church, in our community, there with us on that day. And it's about the kids that are coming up within our church. They're with us. We want, we want to be a multi-generational church where we look on that last day and we see that God has used us and our meagre resources and, our, and the sacrifices we make to make an eternal difference. And that's what Paul and the Lord Jesus is calling on us to do. And I, I've got to say, it, it's, a, it's a hard life, it's costly, but is, it, there's such a blessing because, because you know you're a part of something that has eternal fruit. Um, so I'm going to lead us in prayer. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we want to pray for each one of us, each one of us who's come to know the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your forgiveness. Uh, and please help us to put aside selfish ambition and small-minded dreams. Father, we pray that you'll capture us by your purposes, that we will be gripped uh, by eternal realities of heaven and hell and that day when we will stand before you. And Father, we pray that each one of us will be willing to use our time, our money, our freedoms, our rights, that we'll be willing to give them over to you and use them for the cause of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we will take hold of that prize together and that many from our community will be there and our children will be there as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.